Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. In 1991, my guest today, Shaka Senghor, was sent to prison for second-degree murder. Today, he's a lecturer at universities, a leading voice on criminal justice reform, and an inspiration to thousands, if not millions. Shaka was raised in a middle-class neighborhood on Detroit's east side during the height of the 1980s crack epidemic. An honor roll student and a natural leader, he dreamed of becoming a doctor, but at age 11, his parents' marriage began to unravel, and the beatings from his mother worsened, sending him on a downward spiral that saw him run away from home, turn to drug dealing to survive, and end up in prison for murder at the age of just 19. He was streaming with anger and despair. And today's conversation, my friends, is quite an impactful one. Shaka has written two amazing books. The first one, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in American Prison is honestly one of the greatest books that I've ever had the privilege of reading. It will send tears down your down your eyes for sure. And if it doesn't, then I don't know. <laughs> but honestly, when I read books, I get transported into new worlds, especially memoirs. I love hearing about other people's stories, what they've been through. And Shaka's story especially was something that hit hit me like a ton of bricks. But Shaka is the New York Times bestselling author of Writing My Wrongs. And he's also a leading voice on, like I said, criminal justice reform. He's also a tech investor. He's a lecturer at universities and the head of diversity, equality, and inclusion at Trip Actions, a travel management and expense startup. Shaka is a former MIT Media Lab Directors Fellow, a former fellow in the inaugural class of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation Community Leadership Network, and he's a member of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100. And like I said just a moment ago, this conversation was quite impactful and quite powerful, and I hope that you guys get a lot from it. Shaka also has written another book called Letters to the Sons of Society, another powerful 
read that I highly encourage each and every one of you to go and get a copy. It is another one of those reads that it just sends shivers down your spine from the words. And Shaka is an amazing wordsmith, but he also knows what he's talking about and he's, he's lived life to the full. He just recently, as we were recording this, had his 50th birthday as well. And there's so much that I, I wanted to ask Shaka um, and, and just learn from all the wisdom and the advice this man has. But, you know, maybe that will be for another time. But I, I tried to get as much from this conversation for you guys as possible. So if you do get something from this one, then please share it around to all your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. Also, don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. Links will be in the show notes below for each and every one of you. You can get it as a uh, Kindle version now and, and a hardcover and the audio book is on its way as well. So very exciting things coming up. It's launching on the 27th of September, so just two months away now. Um, and I hope that you guys go and get a copy of it. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, the wild, but the informative stories of none other than Shaka Sengor. I'm uh, super excited to be here and thank you for having me. I'm, I can't wait to dive into what I imagine to be a great conversation. Likewise, my friends, uh, before we dive further into your incredible story, uh, my very first question for you is, what does success look like for you? Uh, that's a great question. You know, it's one of the things that I think about a lot. And for me, success to me is like waking up every day and knowing that whatever I do, it's in alignment with my purpose and that it brings me joy and it brings me a sense of fulfillment. And I'm really fortunate that my life has created space for me to do those things. So feeling real good about success right now. What is your purpose, my friend? I think my purpose is really to share stories that, you know, help us understand the depths of humanity, uh, how to connect in deeper ways, uh, to have a lot of fun. You know, I think that's really something we don't talk enough about is the importance of joy being a part of our destiny. And I think humor is one of the greatest human bridges. I think smiles and happiness uh, really invites people to lean in more and really helps us to connect in the most humane way possible. How did you discover your own purpose? I mean, it took a while. It was quite a journey. Uh, a lot of it came through journaling, uh, which was the first, you know, true form of, of self uh, analysis that I really had undergone. And just through that creative process, you know, being a writer, being able to tell stories that, you know, really awaken our awareness around, you know, the ways that we connect, no matter where we come from, and then being able to just do the work in the world that I do and meet so many incredibly inspiring people that keep me going, keep me lifted up um, and keep me wanting to connect deeper. You are an inspiring individual. And the reason why I say that is because if anyone has either listened to you talk about your story or even read your book, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So I wanted to dive into, if, you, if you're comfortable with this, journeying into the very beginning of your story, how did you grow up, Shaka? What was your upbringing like? Was it stable, unstable? What was happening for you at home? Yeah, so I, I grew up in the city of Detroit. Um, you know, it, it's, it's one of my favorite cities in the world uh, for a few reasons. One, I think it's just the home to so much innovation, you know, that has 
added value to the world. You know, you think about the automobile industry uh, that, that started in my hometown. You think about Motown music uh, that also started in my hometown. And of course, techno music, which a lot of people don't really know, started in Detroit. Um, so those are things that make me really proud of where I'm from and just a sense of community. Uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, you know, in the early days, it looked like a model for middle-class America, you know, the kind of dream of, you know, a, a neighborhood block with tree-lined streets and all those things. But I also grew up in a tough household, you know, where I grappled with, you know, being, you know, in an environment that was very abusive and really trying to navigate that as a kid. You know, it was very complex because on one hand, there was these great moments with my dad and my mom, and then their relationship began to disintegrate. And some of the things that we experienced in the household made it really troubling to stay there. And so when I was about 14 years old, I decided to run away from home. And I thought that, you know, somebody would welcome this little handsome kid in and wrap me up with the love and care that I, I truly believe all children are deserving of, but it just didn't turn out that way. And so I found myself adrift in the street culture uh, at the height of what was the crack cocaine epidemic in, uh, in America. Did you have a good relationship with your parents? <clears throat> I had a good relationship to some degree uh, with like, like more so with my dad than with my mom. Uh, to this day, my dad and I are really like best friends and my mother and I, you know, we really now have a different, you know, kind of relationship where we've done a lot of healing work over the years and, you know, we were able to connect in real time and, um, you know, she's my mom at the end of the day. And, and, you know, one of the things I've learned in my own journey about forgiveness is, you know, forgiveness is, is very complex. You know, it requires this kind of perspective of, you know, first of all, being able to stand in somebody else's shoes and understand how they arrived at a point in their lives where they can hurt you. Yeah. And so I had to do that with my mom and I had to do it with my dad and being able to step into their shoes and realize they were kids raising kids and they were kids who had come from tough backgrounds and tough experiences and were really trying to just make the best of what their circumstances were. And that really allowed me to forgive my parents and to heal and to have real conversations. And the great thing is that they've both been open in different ways to uh, exploring those conversations and healing from the past. I was going to get into forgiveness a little bit later, but I'm glad that you brought it up at the moment because it is an important topic but how can someone that is struggling with forgiveness at the moment, how can we help someone arrive at that place of forgiveness in their own life if they've got someone that they are resenting or if they've been hurt by someone? You know, the way I think of, of forgiveness is almost like a decisive uh, choice on whether to survive or not, right? So imagine you're, um, you know, you're swimming in the ocean and you know, you're sinking because something is wrapped around your ankle and you're trying to disentangle yourself. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you have the strength and the wherewithal to disentangle yourself, you know, your your inclination is to get to the top as fast as possible and get that breath of fresh air. That's what it feels like when you release yourself from uh, the hurts of the past. Right. Those that, those hurts are like that anchor around your ankle that's pulling you down into this kind of drowning pool of sorrow and grief. And, you know, there's moments in your life where it can feel so overwhelming, but the relief that happens when you can escape that and you take that, that breath, that fresh breath of air, that's so healing and rejuvenating 
and you're able to leave behind things that no longer serve you, you know, that that aspiration, you know, I think everybody would want to take that that breath. Now, the thing, the complex thing is like, how do you get to that that deep breath? Right. Yeah. And, you know, it requires some will. It requires some tenacity. It requires you making a real decision on what you want to hold on to and what you want to let go of, you know, and I, and I will say that it's, it's not a one off situation. It's really a process, uh, step by step, moment to moment. Uh, you know, you can take three steps forward and get pushed back to, you know, but if you have the will and the, the fortitude to move forward, you know, to get to that, that other side. Um, it's such a beautiful place on the other side of forgiveness. And, you know, again, it's, it's a desire, though. Do you want it bad enough? And, you know, I always think of it like, you know, what do I want in my life and how bad do I want it? And if there's something that I want bad enough, including a peace of mind, you know, am I willing to fight for it? Am I willing to sacrifice ego? Am I willing to sacrifice anything that stands in the way of me getting where I want to go? And I feel the same way about forgiveness is that, you know, I know that I want it to be healthy. I want to be whole. I want to be able to love. I want to be able to receive love. And I knew that, you know, the lack of forgiveness would stand in the way of that. So I've worked really hard to moment by moment uh, heal from, on, on this journey. Do you believe that there is something that is truly unforgivable? I don't think there's anything just categorically unforgivable. Um, I think it's on an individual level, yeah. you know, and what's your spiritual capacity to forgive is. And, you know, I've met people who, you know, have experienced things that were so horrendous, so hurtful, and I've bore witness to them leaning into forgiveness in a way that was inspiring. And, you know, at different junctures in my journey, I was like, well, I don't know if I can get there, or I don't know if I have that in me. And I don't think any of us do until we're faced with something that challenges what we think that we think it is that we believe. So categorically, I, I wouldn't say that there, you know, isn't a space for forgiveness. And again, you know, the forgiveness is a gift you give to yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so it's not about the other person. It's not about, you know, whole, you know, uh, uh, forgiving for the sake of their freedom. It's really forgiven for the sake of your own freedom. And so when I think about the things that I've experienced in life and how, uh, they've impacted my life. You know, I've, I believe that my freedom that I experience now is a result of me choosing myself over choosing to continue to be angry and upset uh, by someone who's caused me harm. Yeah, it's all very true. I was, I want to go back to your relationship with your father. Uh, and I was reading, there's a letter in here that I believe the title is unconditional love. And mm. I wanted. I wanted to ask you about what you've actually learned. You're, you're a father now as well. What yeah. you've learned about unconditional love from your father and what you've learned being a father about unconditional love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, my dad is, is my greatest example of the complexities of fatherhood. You know, there were areas in his life where he didn't get things right. And then there was this growth and there was this continuation of figuring life out and, and, and really showing up uh, for his children. And what I learned is that fatherhood is a lifelong journey of the highest level of education you can get as a human being, uh, which is really understanding that your children are your greatest test cases. They're your greatest, you know, pop quizzes. They're the greatest, you know, study groups that you'll ever experience. Um, and if you stay on a journey long enough and, you, and you're intentional in the journey, 
you know, you'll learn so much that'll add tremendous amount of value. And that's what I got from my dad. You know, my dad is, he's not the same dad today. He was, you know, five years ago, you know, or 10 years ago, it's an ever evolving thing. And fortunately he's just got better and better at it, you know, over time. And so my hopes and, and my, and my dreams for myself as a dad is to continue to just get better day by day, moment by moment. How old were you when you became a father? So my first uh, son was born, I was 19 years old. And uh, my youngest son was born, I was just a year shy of being 40. Um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a 50 year old dad of a 10 year old and a 30 year old son. Um, and, you know, it's, it's incredible. I feel like I'm almost born again every day, though, in my engagements with fatherhood, like, because it's just like, these these moments where I can look at my, my 10 year old son, say, cool. And I'm like, wow, he's grown so much in one day, like literally, like sometimes it's just physical growth and sometimes it's just a maturity of the spirit. And it blows my mind, you know, but it, it also makes me really you know, appreciative of, of my responsibility as a dad. What do you love most about being a dad is the first question. And the second question is for someone that's not a dad yet, do you have any advice? <laughs> yeah. So, so my, the thing that I, I love most about being a dad is the ability to observe another human being on their journey and to watch them navigate the world with curiosity, to watch them learn and discover new things. Uh, you know, watching Sekou go through this, this process of, you know, just discovering himself, you know, it's beautiful. And it's, it's, and then there's these other moments where he's just like, dad, I, I just need a hug, you know, or, you know, we have our little inside jokes, you know, and it's like this, you're building this culture of relationship that's so special and, and so sacred. And, you know, those are the things that I truly love about a dad and being a dad. And what I would say to, you know, fathers to be, you know, is, this is a, a, it's a sacred fraternity. You know, it is truly a great gift. I would say the greatest gift you can give your children um, is full access to all of your emotions. You know, they grow so much when they see us grow. Uh, they grow so much when they see us open and we're vulnerable. And, and you know, it's, it's beautiful to have that connection to your, to your child. Yeah, no doubt, man. Like, yeah, I'm still young, so I've got a long way to go, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I have to be... I hope to be a good father. Honestly, that is, that is my mission. But yeah, I was reading the, the, the diary entry that you wrote, Unconditional Love, I believe, to mm. your son, which was just a beautiful, the way you, you articulated and described it, talking about how you're thinking about the, the forming of your son and, and what was going through your brain in that, in that respect. I mean, just beautiful words, man. I mean, yeah. did you always want to be a writer or was that something that mm -hmm. came unexpected? It came unexpected. Um, but I, what, I, what I realized when I go back and I really think about my journey as a writer, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a rapper <laughs> and I had a question, why did I want to be a rapper? And I thought about the rap that I listened to at the time. And some of my favorite artists from back then, they were just such magical wordsmiths. And they were able to, you know, take me on this journey, you know, from my little neighborhood in, in, in Detroit, I felt like I, I was, in, I can go on this journey into New York. I can go on this journey into these places that I hadn't yet seen. And there was something beautiful about that. You know, growing up, I didn't see many writers that were 
uh, black. You know, I just didn't know of the writers, you know, uh, the Harlem era, the Harlem Renaissance era that had kind of gone by. We didn't read a ton of that work in school. So it wasn't until later on when I discovered just all these great black writers, which really made me feel connected. But I didn't have any idea that this would be the art form that would be um, you know, my gift. And, and, you know, I thought I would be a visual artist. I used to love to draw when I was a kid. And now I'm fortunate to be able to paint pictures with words. And, um, you know, as many things that I do that bring me joy in, in life, you know, writing is, is definitely at the top of the list of the things where I find the greatest sense of joy at. Where did you start writing in the first place? Like where was the place for yeah. you that it all began? Yeah, so I, I started actually writing while I was incarcerated. So I spent 19 years in prison, which I talk about in, in, in my first mainstream uh, release, was writing my wrongs, life, death, redemption in American prison. Um, you know, and, and it started like in this very, you know, kind of way that was, you know, something that I hadn't expected. A friend of mine, he was writing for the newspaper in prison. Like we had a, a, a intramural newspaper that we would share within a prison, he asked me to write an article. And, and I didn't, you know, I was like, why would you ask me to write an article? And he was like, well, you seem like you're smart. And so um, I ended up writing this story about discovering that, you know, one of my sisters were, was experiencing a drug addiction. And I wrote about how heartbroken it was for me to find that out. And then, you know, that got shared in the prison newspaper and guys really just came up to me and was like, you know, thank you so much for sharing that story, you know, my my family members going through it. And then it was years later when I was in solitary confinement and I just decided that I was going to try to write a book. And I ended up writing my first book in about, I think it was like 30 or 60 days or so. Um, and then I shared it with guys on the cell block and like their reaction to my work was so affirming. You know, it really made me uh, realized that, hey, maybe this is something beyond me just doing this exercise, but maybe this is like my gift and my purpose. And I've been writing ever since now. It's, it's like over 20 years uh, I've been writing. And you are one hell of a writer. Let me just say that. <laughs> I mean, you have a way with words. Let me just, but the story element to you actually putting those words and forming the story in the first place mm -hmm. just makes it captivating to actually read and continue reading. Cause sometimes when you read a book, you can get, you get lost a little bit or you get bored a bit. But with these ones, I've noticed the way you articulate yourself, it's such a powerful way. It's kept me hooked and that's what I like. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about your first book and the, mm. your obvious story. You mentioned that you did go to prison. You, you were in prison for quite some time. You're also in solitary confinement. Can I ask you, and if you're comfortable with sharing as well, what led you to going to prison for those people that don't know? Yeah, for people who don't know my story, you know, as I mentioned early on, you know, when I was about 14 years old, I ran away from home and got, you know, seduced into the drug culture. And, you know, within my first six months within that culture, my childhood friend was murdered. I was robbed at gunpoint. I was nearly beat to death. And I continued on in that culture. And when I was 17 years old, I ended up getting shot multiple times, uh, three times uh, in total. And, you know, 16 months later, I got into a conflict and I shot and tragically caused the man's death. And I was subsequently arrested, charged with open murder and sentenced to 17 to 40 years 
in prison for second degree murder. And, you know, when I, when I reflect back on those times and I think about that 19 year old kid with a gun in his hand, um, you know, obviously if I could just, you know, encourage him to like, you know, just take that next step and go home, you know, I would. And, and it's one of the most regrettable uh, experiences in my life. It's taught me the most about life, about the value of life, about, you know, the value of forgiveness, about the value of atonement. You know, uh, when you've hurt someone and you've devastated a family, like how do you, you know, make it right with the community? You know, I learned so much over the years and, and you know, that's how I ended up in prison. To take you back to that moment, and I know that you don't have to share this com completely, but I wanted to ask you, for, for those people that are wondering, what goes through your mind after that life has been taken? Yeah, I think when, when in that particular night, um, there were so many things, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things when we hear about it on the news, it can seem like this kind of long, drawn-out experience in reality you know, it's an exchange that probably was all of 30 seconds. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the first thing that, that went through my mind was like, what have I done? You know, that question of like, you know, this isn't the person that I want to be. This isn't the life that I want to, you know, live. And, um, and I, I just couldn't even believe that, you know, I had, you know, caused this devastation um, to this family and to this man and to my community. And so there was just tons of things running through my mind at 19 years old. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, I, I, when I talk to young people about gun violence is, you know, once the sentence is done physically, like the jail, the prison sentence, um, you know, you're still serving a different type of time. And it's a spiritual time. It's an emotional time because no matter what happens in life, you know, that's that's a moment in my life that I'll never forget. Um, you know, I'll never forget that moment. And, you know, and it haunts me at times, you know, it's very difficult to see families when they go through uh, moments where they've lost a loved one to, to violence. And, you know, my family, we just went through it last July, um, you know, with with we just celebrated, um, you know, the, the anniversary um, of my brother being murdered um, at home in Detroit. And it was tough, you know, it's very complex, you know, one as as you know, I'm his big brother. And, you know, my family is grieving and I wanted to grieve with them. Uh, but unfortunately, I couldn't I couldn't grieve because I was processing my own guilt of knowing I made somebody else's family feel the way that my family was feeling in that moment. Um, and so it's one of those things that it's a lifelong sentence, you know, that I have to deal with. I figured out ways to navigate that. Um, and, and I just take it moment to moment. Yeah, it is. It is quite I, I don't. I've never experienced that and I would never try and relate in any, any such way to anything that you just said, but for someone that hasn't grown up in that, in that kind of environment and the young person that, you know, is growing up in that kind of environment, how can we help them understand that in that moment that, you know, could you have, how do, how do we help navigate this kind of conversation? Like to help, the other side that doesn't really understand a young kid that's grown up in that sort of environment that has led them to this point, how do we get them to that, that middle ground to say, look, they've made a mistake. How do we, do, does that make sense? 
Yeah, when I when I think about you know the conversations, you know, I'm I'm, I'm really fortunate at this point in my life where I navigate a lot of spaces, right? And I talk to people who can't even remotely begin to understand the world that I came from. Uh, just to give an example, you know, in my family alone, there's at a minimum eight of us who have been victims of gun violence. Wow. And as a result of that, there's been at least five of us who have gone to prison for gun-related violence. And so what I've been able to do is talk, you know, honestly about what PTSD really looks like in the inner city. Um, you know, we talk about it with military veterans when they come back from war and they come back and they're traumatized from their experience and they're triggered. And but we don't talk about it when it comes to inner city kids who are living in environments where the gun violence is astronomical uh, by any stretch of the imagination anywhere in the, else in the world. Um, you know, it would be considered a war torn community. Um, but for us, it's just a day in the life in the hood. And so, you know, what I would say is that, you know, we have to start having more honest conversations. We have to really think about what the lives of these kids really look like in day to day, in their day to day experiences. I can go in a classroom in almost any city in America right now, in an inner city, uh, meaning predominantly black, predominantly brown communities. And if I was to talk to a class of 100 students and say, uh, by show of hands, how many of you know someone in your age, in your friend group, in your neighborhood who's been shot? And almost all of those kids will raise their hands. And no kids should grow up worrying about whether they're going to be shot, whether they're going to die uh, before they've had a chance to dream and live. And I think once we can get to a space where we actually see that these kids are innocent victims, of their environment. I was a victim of my environment. Uh, I was a kid, you know, at 19, your brain isn't even fully formed. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that I wrote right in my wrongs is it wasn't to excuse the decision I made. Like I've served the time for it. I've accepted full responsibility. I've been fully accountable, but I wanted people to understand how a kid who has the potential to be anything in the world could end up pulling the trigger. Uh, and taking someone's life. And so I think it just really starts with those honest conversations. Is redemption uh, a similar thing to forgiveness? I think redemption is an extension of forgiveness. You know, I think uh, forgiveness is kind of the entry point into this world of complete healing. And for me, when I think about redemption, I think about the ability to overcome adversity um, and for, you know, people to create space for that. Um, and, and, and it's not always easy. It's not always pretty. Like, I mean, I can't even tell you how many mean things have been said, how many horrific things have been said, how many people uh, don't believe that I should be free or uh, have the current experiences that I have. But then there's this world of other people who have seen the impact of my work on community. They've seen the impact of my work on, uh, you know, men, women, and, and people who are, incarcerated in the juvenile systems and they, you know, encourage their work and they support it and they, you know, do everything they can to push me forward. And so that's what redemption looks like to me. It's an extension of forgiveness. It's this idea that we can overcome. We're not bound by our worst moment, uh, but we have to be willing to put in the work. Like I wouldn't be who I am today if I would not have put the work in. And I think people underestimate what that looks like. Um, you know, they see the book and they think, oh, well, he got he has a book out or two books now. Um, mm -hmm. Life is easy. But first I had to write the books 
Yeah. Uh, but before I can write the books, I had to heal some of the hurts. And I had to go through this process of self-healing and uh, really learning about myself in an intimate way and, and utilizing the things that I've learned as a means to communicate what I think is really important. Yeah. Very, yeah, it's not easy to write a book. And <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that being able to share a story like yours would have would have been an easy thing to do because you mentioned that you have faced a lot of criticism and a lot of blowback. How have you been able to cope with that? Like what's what goes through your mind when you get people that say you should be still in prison, you shouldn't have a book, you, you know, still be doing the time. What do you do with that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't take it that personal. Uh, because I've realized that anybody who has that judgment doesn't know me. Yeah. Um, and they're operating out of whatever fears they have, whatever sense of like moral uh, superiority they may have. And I get it and I understand it for what it is. Um, if anything, it inspires me to do more. It inspires me to impact, you know, the spaces that I've uh, kind of navigate in a more meaningful and deeper way. And, and, and I mean, I've seen people turn around. I've seen people judge me one way. And two years later, they come and say, you know, I really was unfair in my judgment and my assessment. You know, I see who you are and see what you're doing. And I believe who you are today is who you've always been, but things happen. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's tough. I mean, I'm fortunate I have great friends. You know, I have great uh, people around me who really care about me as a human being, who really know me on a really intimate level. <laughs> Excuse me. And so, you know, that helps, you know, it helps a lot. And then it's the people who I don't know. Like, I, I can't even tell you from the time Writing My Wrongs came out um, six years ago, a little over six years ago. Every day since that book has come out, I've got a message from somebody who has read that book. And they talk to me about how the book has impacted the way that they think about life. I have people who are police officers who read the book and who have read it. I have people who are lawyers, people who work in criminal justice. I have young people, I have educators, I mean, entertainers, everybody you can think of who's read this book talks about the profound impact it's had on their life. And like that balances out any negative, you know, experience that I've had. And it doesn't mean that those things don't hurt. You know, there's been moments where um, I was really vulnerable, you know, and, and, and really got hurt. Um, so it happens. And I just try to keep standing the positive. What does justice really mean to you? To me, justice means that we take in all the factors, um, that we really think about what is the best absolute outcomes for, for people who have been impacted by whatever the situation is, right? Um, and I think that society, we have a role to think of justice as how do we set up the best case scenario for society to heal? And punishment isn't justice, it's the complete opposite. And it has the opposite impact. And so to me, I think about what is the most restorative? How do we come back to wholeness? How do we create space for apologies? How do we create space for forgiveness? And how do we create space for redemption? And to me, when you factor those things, it's any decision that you make, to me, ultimately that is just. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is a very good point, actually. I'm curious, Shaka, I've got a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. Yeah. But this idea of 
people not understanding, for me, it comes from, I guess, a deeper sense of, sense of the word hate, right? And I'm curious from your perspective, why, why do people hate in the first place? I think hatred is born out of fear. You know, when I think about, you know, my experience growing up in America and growing up, you know, hearing the, the, the stories of my grandmother, hearing the stories of my great grandmother, you know, a lot of times people think about slavery as this kind of far, far, far away thing until you really talk to somebody who's black and, and you know, realize that like their great grandparent, you know, was on a plantation yeah. um, or they were sharecroppers where they were you know, discriminated against or they had, you know, they were in bathrooms where it was like whites only and blacks only. And, 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 and then we still deal with a lot of it today. And I just think it's fear. You know, I think people are, you know, so locked into this idea that if you treat somebody who doesn't look like you, a uh, human, that somehow that extension of their, you know, your humanity is going to rob you of all the things you've accumulated. Um, and it's really sad and it's sickening, you know, to, to live in a world where we hate people based on cultural differences, uh, or at least the idea of cultural differences. But then when you really get down to the granular level of culture, all of our culture is intersectional. Mm. Um, you know, nobody's living in an isolated culture in the world at this point. You know, we're all sharing music. We're all sharing food. We're all sharing, you know, the resources of the world in different ways, right? We all have ideas about fashion. We have ideas about, you know, interior design and decorating and like all the, the, the basic elements of human existence. There are so many things we overlap that when you get down to it, hatred is really stupidity. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's basically fear wrapped in, in the, the horrendous garb of stupidity. And the other stupid part is people just keep feeding the fear. They keep Absolutely. feeding the hate and yeah. there's no reason to. Especially yeah. in today's day and age, like hate begets more hate and begets Absolutely. violence. It begets all these things that are the bane of society. And we continue to do it. Doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on, both of them do it. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, can we can we get to the center here and try and find some commonality amongst the both? Because if we can remove the hate and make yeah. and put love in its place, then maybe we won't have so many of these crazy issues. I don't know. What do you think, Shaka? Yeah, I think about I think about that a lot. You know, I think about one of the stories in the book uh, in Letters to the Sons of Society where I had this encounter with an officer and that 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 encounter could have went so, you know, far wrong. You know, it could have been extremely volatile. It could have been angry. It could have been all the things. And instead, we just leaned into our humanity. You know, we had this very human connection. And, you know, when I shared that story, that story went viral immediately. You know, it's to this date. It probably has 20 million views on Facebook. Um, and, you know, what that, what that told me is that more people desire good, uh, more people desire love. And it's only this small segment of society that is really hate-fueled. And sadly, because it, it, it gets people to click on things or it gets people to tune in, because it feeds fear, right? Like, if you're afraid that you're going to be treated different because of how you look, um, something about that makes you curious to see what the next news cycle has to say about that mm -hmm. very thing that you fear. And so I think a lot of it is just the marketing of fear. Um, you know, and I think we can get to a space where 
And I think we're getting there. I mean, like, you know, we got a long ways to go, right? But I think there are some things that we're talking about and discussing on a global level now that is really challenging the old ideas that hate can win. Uh, because there's nothing, you know, statistically to prove that hate um, has been victorious over love. Hate speaks, hate is loud, but love is louder. And I think Absolutely. we've got to amplify that voice and that noise a lot more. And you're right, the media doesn't help at all with amplifying hate because of ratings and whatnot and drama and uh, naturally inclined humans will, will gravitate more towards a drama than sort of happiness and, and love. But if we make more places and more examples of love and of happiness and of joy instead in the place of the hate, then can you imagine what that would do? Like, yeah. My brain just goes to so many wonderful places, man, when I think about that. But just imagine. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and I think we've seen it, you know, in our time, whenever there's like, you know, a crisis, world crisis, you know, people show up, you know, and and they look every color of the rainbow, you know, every gender identity, you just see people leaning in, you know, whether it's donating to a cause, whether it's coming in and offering physical labor, you know, I can't even tell you how many times I've been in spaces where, you know, you have the human rainbow all lending their hands to good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the majority of humans. Like, I don't, I don't think that we operate mostly out of fear. I just think it's a small, excuse me, a small segment of the world, but it doesn't go. I think good doesn't get as noticed as much. And maybe, you know, because there's more good than bad, it, it doesn't need to get as noticed as much. And that's why we had these cycles where you see, you know, the hatred and the vitriol and, and all those things. But I think for the most part, people desire uh, good. I mean, you know, I've talked to some people who just come from vastly different backgrounds and different understandings. And once we get into like deep conversation, and they realize we all want the same thing. You know, most people just want to be able to have a safe place to, to live, you know, have food in their belly, have laughs and jokes with their friends and family. And that's pretty much the human experience. We got such a short amount of time to be here mm-hmm. and, you know, to choose to be in a space of like angry and hurt. Um, you know, to me, it just seems counterintuitive when you think about uh, what's possible on the other side of all of that. You recently had your 50th birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah. That's a, it's a milestone in, a, in and of itself, my friend. What, what is exciting you about the future? That's a great question. You know, I, what I love about being 50 in this day and age is that, you know, I think the current 50 isn't the same as like, you know, my, my parents and my grandparents' generation. Um, so I feel young and youthful and vibrant and, you know, I'm enjoying life. I'm enjoying you know, art and culture and music. And, you know, some of it is is more probably geared or marketed to younger people, but, you know, I love it. I still love cool sneakers and fast cars and all the things. Um, but also I feel like 50 is is the age of settling into life. You know, I think when you get to, to this age, you kind of grow a lot more comfortable with life. You get a little bit more certain about who you are and, and, and where you are in the world. Um, the world doesn't seem as, as crazy and, and, and scary. Um, you know, you have a little bit of of, a perspective that, you know, you can only get with just being around for a while. And what I'm most excited about is, is, is really just continuing to deepen, you know, my family relationships, you know, I just got engaged recently and, um, you know, so I'm excited about 
us really just growing as a family and in partnership and uh, seeing what that looks like. And it feels good on me right now. What do you love the most about yourself and your story? What I love the most about myself, I would say, is my uh, ability to find, you know, laughter and joy in most circumstances. Um, you know, I have a great sense of humor. At least I've been told. Um, so uh, I, I love that. I, I love that quality. And, and you know, and, and I have a big heart. You know, I, 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 you know, I've always had that. And, you know, to be able to be, you know, who I am to the people in my life brings me the, the, the greatest joy. Mm. Love what was the second part of that? What do you love the most about your story? Oh, about my story. Um, what I would say is, is the thing that I love the most is the intentionality in which I live life and the, the resiliency, the, the ability to overcome adversity in a way that has added value to the world. Um, so that, that, that really means a lot to me. You know, the, the, the things that I've accomplished you know, over time really just speaks to like my curiosity and, and, um, you know, it wasn't until recently and, and I, you know, I and I can say this in fairness, the way that our culture is set up, like we're not set up to like celebrate ourselves or to kind of, you know, brag about ourselves or what, whatever we've accomplished. And I've thought deeply about that. Cause I'm the, I'm the friend I'm celebrating everything, you know, whatever you accomplish, I'm there. I'm like, let's do this. Let's, let's have drinks. Let's have dinner. Let's throw a party, whatever the case may be. Um, but it's hard for us to do that for ourselves sometimes. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I celebrated 10 years of freedom and I kind of just went back and looked at, you know, what's happened over that time. And I was like, wow, I'm impressed with this dude. You know, like he's, he's, he's actually amazing. You know, all the things that life has thrown at him, you know, he's basically, taking those things and, 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 and really utilize those as stepping stones toward a greater purpose. And, you know, if I'm not impressed with it, then how can anybody else be? So I'm pretty impressed with that part of my life. I love that, man. And you do have quite, like I said, quite a few times an inspiring story and more people need to get to know it and get to know you as well. So where can people connect with you and, and learn more about you, Shaka, before I ask you the final question? Yeah, I am easy to find on all social media platforms up under my name, Shaka Singor. That's S-H-A-K-A-S-E-N-G-H-O-R. And that's literally every social platform. It's also my website. So pretty easy to find. Amazing. And go and get a copy of his books. I'm holding it up. Letters to the Sons of Society and Life, Death, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison. Both two amazing books. Both made me cry. Um, mm. Man, this is my final question for you. Uh, really, really enjoy this conversation with you. And thank you so much for making the time. I'm for sure. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you're being able to reach the age of 100. Mm. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? My 100th birthday, I would love for that film to show uh, how much I enjoyed uh, great bottles of tequila, um, <laughs> how much I laughed, uh, the great music I listened to, the many books I've read and written, 
Um, the way that I've, you know, lived my life with joy and, and purpose, um, you know, the kind of dad that I am, you know, um, you know, that's what that's what would really be, you know, the kind of partner I am, uh, the way I show up in love, like those things would really be like, you know, I'm happy to see the tapestry of all these different parts of my life and see that consistent through line being love, humor um, and tons of laughter. Some great send-off message for people, but Shaka, man, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your advice, and obviously your story, and for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Uh, well, thank you so much. I truly appreciate it and look forward to more. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.